a distraction. I just kind of thought this isn't going to work very well if people don't get to read what I'm what I'm talking about. I hope you've all had a really good week. Um, this week has been a, an interesting one for for us. Um, I, I had a friend from high school. Um, I had two friends from high school, and they were a bit they were high school sweethearts, and they ended up marrying each other. And anyway, um, over the course of the week, um, the 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 husband contracted um, H1N1, and anyway, he uh, he he ended up passing away this week. And so it was kind of one of those things where it's just kind of like a jarring thing where here's a guy who's my age and just kind of uh, faces or just faced like a very unfortunate um, disease uh, virus. And anyway, um, kind of made me uh, very reflective. And I just kind of reached out to all my high school friends like, hey, how are you doing? How are things going? And just kind of reconnecting with people. Um the last series that we did had to do with justice, and I guess moving on from the topic of justice, uh, my mind kind of wandered to this idea of oppression or systematic oppression, and I don't know um, how many of you are familiar with the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, but for those of you who may not be familiar with the name, um, Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian during the Nazi regime, and his, his writings have become quite popular in, um, in Christianity um, because and his writings and his life have become quite important because uh, of his response to oppression that he faced in his time. <clears throat> and uh, basically, he lived during the time of the uh, Nazi regime. And so I thought I would kind of talk about this idea of the Christian's response to oppre- uh, oppression. I'm just going to start with a word of prayer, and uh, I'll invite you to join me as we as we pray. Father God, we come before you today, and I just want to ask that uh, your presence would be felt here as we explore this uh, complex topic, as we explore different approaches to this idea of facing oppression. I pray that your spirit would lead and guide us and give us clarity. And um, as we continue to think about these things and as we respond to oppression in our own lives, we pray that uh, you would give us wisdom. We pray this in your name. Amen. So just to give you a bit of a story, a background story of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, in January 1933, uh, the German conservatives were facing a political deadlock, and they engineered a way to make Hitler the leader of Germany's – excuse me – they engineered a way to make Adolf Hitler the German chancellor. And he was at the time the leader of Germany's largest political party. And the conservatives felt like we can control this guy if we bring him into power. And this is what the people are asking for. And so it was their means of controlling the masses. But we know through history that they were wrong. The Nazis became wildly popular. They enticed most of Germany's indispensable civil servants, including teachers, judges, professors, They intimidated and silenced everybody who resisted them. What I want to do is introduce two characters, a lawyer by the name of Hans von Donanyi, and forgive my poor accent, but Hans von Donanyi and his brother-in-law Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I'm going to be slaughtering both of those names, but just bear with me. So Donanyi recorded all... The Nazi crimes as they came into power, he helped victims and he did his best to sabotage Nazi policies. And as a German counterintelligence officer, he helped plot uh, the removal of Adolf Hitler. 
<clears throat> As you know, Donyanyi and the German resistance were not successful. And um, just to kind of give you a snapshot of what happened, thousands of German officers were eventually executed for high treason. So Danyanyi is an important figure because um, he heavily influences Bonhoeffer and his decisions and his life. Um, as Danyanyi's resistance activities um, grew, um, as Bonhoeffer was his brother-in-law, he kind of tended to share his ideas, and Bonhoeffer often uh, resonated with the things that his brother his brother-in-law was talking about. Now, while Danyanyi opposed the Nazis through law and internal military resistance, Bonhoeffer fought the Nazi efforts uh, to control the German Protestant churches. So Bonhoeffer sees that the Nazis wanted the churches to encourage civic duty based off of race rather than religion. And Bonhoeffer joins this group of pastors in challenging the conservative reactionary church leaders who agree with the state's dogmas. So there were about 2,000 pastors who opposed the Nazi party, and they became known as the Confessing Church. And later on, 900 of those pastors would eventually be imprisoned. So Bonhoeffer, initially, he was quite discouraged by the church's response because um, in Germany at that time, the church was kind of organized as as a whole, like a uh, by the state. So there was a state religion, if you will. And if you think back to the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther is kind of the father of the Protestant Reformation. He's German, and so Christianity in Germany is quite strong at that time. So Bonhoeffer sees that the church has kind of sided with the Nazi party, and he gets really discouraged, and he decides, I'm going to go to the U.S., and maybe I can get a job, and I'm going to study, and I can just kind of avoid this whole mess. And during his time in the U.S., as he continues to study and as he continues to hear of news of what's happening in his homeland, he decides this is not the right decision. I cannot stay here in the U.S., and I'm going to head back to Germany. And so his mentor um, tried keeping him stateside, and he writes in a letter to his mentor, I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. Christians in Germany are going to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose. Now picture being Bonhoeffer, you are free. You don't have to worry about conflict. You're in a country where there's religious freedom. And he thinks to himself, I cannot stay. I, I cannot stay on the sidelines. And in other parts of his writings, he kind of laments the fact of, how can I ever go back to my country if I fled it in its greatest time of need? And so Bonhoeffer travels back to Germany and he joins his brother-in-law in German counterintelligence, and thus both of them avoid military or active military duties. While together, they plot with a group of conspirators to remove Hitler. And when I say remove Hitler, I don't mean politically. So in March 1943, the group of conspirators, they organized a bomb to be placed on Hitler's plane. And this bomb was disguised in the form of two bottles of liquor. And so one, one um, of the high officials that were a part of the resistance placed this gift onto the airplane, and lo and behold, the mechanism didn't go off, and 
basically Hitler survived. A couple weeks later, in March 21, another assassination attempt um, was miscarried because of a last-minute change in Hitler's plans. Now, interestingly enough, neither the Gestapo um, or the SS knew of these two failed attempts. So over the course of the next two months, the Nazi chieftains' distrust of the German people had grown. There were groups of uprising and resistance within Germany, and basically the Nazis knew there are people in our country that don't want us to be here. And so as the suspicions grew on April 5, Bonhoeffer, Donyanyi, and Donyanyi's wife, Christine, were all arrested. And so Christine is also Bonhoeffer's sister. So without proof of evidence, but on suspicion, Bonhoeffer and Donyanyi were imprisoned for the next two years. Um, They were often interrogated. Um, They were uh, borderline... um, um, What's really severe interrogation? Tortured, yeah, thank you. (laughs) And so they really experienced a high degree of of difficulty. And it's really powerful when you read the letters that go back and forth between Donyani, Bonhoeffer, and Christine because Donyani feels really responsible and he apologizes. I'm so sorry for bringing you and our family into this. And you see the response, um, we are united. There's no need to apologize because we are facing... Um, extreme oppression. So Christine um, Bonhoeffer's sister and Donyanyi's wife writes to her children while still in prison, and she would later be released. But she writes to her two sons. Now I want to tell you one more thing: don't carry any hate in your heart against the power that has done this to us. Don't fill your young souls with bitterness that has its revenge and takes from you the most beautiful thing there is trust. It is after all only a really small and meager part of the human being that one can put in jail. I embrace all of you. What a powerful thing for a mother to say to her children. She's saying there's there's one sacred thing in your heart that's trust. Don't let the enemy extinguish that from your heart. Now, the story of Bonhoeffer and Donyanyi and in tragedy in that two weeks before the Axis powers were overthrown, in a fit of rage, Hitler orders the execution of all those who oppose him. And so he just kind of went on a, um, it's kind of like if you've seen the, the, the Godfather, he goes to the mattresses and just wipes everybody out. And, and it's crazy reading the historical accounts of these SS officers. They're on the battlefield, but... Rather than going and fighting the enemy or, sur- or, or surrendering, they are given orders. Go take the cap- captives, take them to the field, and execute them. And they can hear the fighting going on like just in the distance, but they have to carry out their orders. And so you really get a picture of, um, you really get a picture of Hitler's heart through this time. So I bring this up because some of us have faced oppression similar to Bonhoeffer. And I realize that sounds very extreme, but if you talk to Shane, for example, um, and learn about what it's like to grow up in Myanmar during the Karen conflict, which has led to the attempt of genocide of the, of the Karen people, you really get a picture. There are people who live today in the face of extreme oppression, and as a result, their whole families have, have basically uh, been forced out of their countries. Some of us face oppression at work, where we have people who for one reason or another, just want to make our lives difficult. 
Some of us live in families, uh, and we have friends who make our lives difficult. And my question for today is, how are we to act and respond as Christians to difficult circumstances? How are we as Christians to respond to oppression? So today, I actually, I don't have an answer for you. (laughs) But what I do want to do is explore three influential Christian thinkers, uh, one being Bonhoeffer. Um, I'd like to explore the writings of Peter with you because his writings are very challenging. He really, he talks a lot about submission, uh, submission to the authority, submission to your master, submission to your husband, like all these really, his rhetoric is so challenging. And so I'd like to explore the writings of Peter and finally briefly look at the life of Jesus um, as he responds to oppression in his life. And so rather uh, many times when when I share talks or preach sermons, I'm quite prescriptive. This is what God wants. Um, And in this case, I'm just going to say, here are three influential people who I believe were filled by the Spirit of God who responded to oppression differently. And at the end of the day, um, I encourage you to pray through how to respond in your own difficult circumstances. So let's start with Bonhoeffer. Um, in summary, Bonhoeffer has three approaches to oppression. And I'm just going to read this because um, I think it's better if I just read it. <laughs> so there are three possibilities for action. And, and Bonhoeffer, when he talks about resistance or, or uh, responding with resistance, he's talking about the church. How should we as a church respond to oppression? So he says, there are thus three possibilities for action that the church can take vis-a-vis the state. First, questioning the state as to the legitimate state character of its actions. That is, making the state responsible for what it does. Second, is service to the victims of the state's actions. The church has an unconditional obligation towards the victims of any societal order, even if they do not belong to the Christian community. Let us work for the good of all, says Christ. These are both ways in which the church in its freedom conducts itself in the interest of a free state. In times when the laws are changing, the church may under no circumstances neglect either of these duties. The third possibility is not just to bind up the wounds of the victims beneath the wheel, but to seize the wheel itself. And this is what he means. When he refers to the wheel, Bonhoeffer is talking about the system, the government itself. And so he's saying when the government does not act within its own legal obligations, it is the church's duty to then seize control of seize control and do that which is right. All right. So that's a really, really extreme statement, right? Can you imagine uh, all the pastors going around preaching, hey, uh, so-and-so politician is doing the wrong thing. Let's, let's take him out. You know, we're going we're gonna to perform a coup. And so um, these are very extreme, extreme writings. And uh, basically the Nazis were quite aware of, of Bonhoeffer's writings, and hence he was uh, thrown in prison. So Michael, uh, Michael, I can't pronounce his last name, is a professor and chair of religious studies at the University of Southern California. He's the author of Bonhoeffer's Theological Formation and also Bonhoeffer on Resistance. And so um, he highlights 
six types of resistance. Um, so I've summarized the three, and he kind of expands that. I'm just going to highlight four points, and really two of them are one. And so I'm just overly complicating this, but you'll know what I'm talking about. So here are the types of resistance um, explaining uh, or, or exploring it a bit more. So the first thing that Bonhoeffer talks about is um, the individual and humanitarian resistance to state injustice. Right. So this is, this is the first um, point that Bonhoeffer makes in that three-point summary. So here's a quote. It remains for the humanitarian associations and individual Christian men who see themselves called to do so to make the state aware of the moral aspect of the measures it takes in this regard. That is, should the occasion arise to accuse the state of offenses against morality. And so what he's saying is, as individuals, for those of us who are in vocations where we have influence, we should utilize our voice and our power to then speak out against injustice. So if you're a judge, you should act justly. And if the government does wrong, then call them out. If you're a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, do the same. If you're a teacher, if you're a professor, if you're a pastor, you should do everything in your power to speak out against injustice. We have personal responsibility. Point number two is the church's diaconal service to victims of state injustice. And this is quite laid out in, um, in that summary. But Bonhoeffer believes that there should be service to the victims of the state's actions. And he writes, The church is the place where Jesus Christ's taking form is proclaimed and where it happens. And there are times when the service of the church goes in contrast to the policy of the government. And so, for example, um, Australia has very strict border control, and Australia has a very uh, specific way of responding to uh, refugees and those of, uh, and, and asylum seekers. And what you'll notice is as you walk through the streets of Melbourne, um, every now and then you'll see churches and they have these banners that say, uh, refugees, you are welcome here. Right, And so Bonhoeffer is saying, regardless of what the state policy is, the church should always provide service to the victims and those who are oppressed. And I'm just putting these two into one. The church's indirectly political word to the state and the church's directly political word against an unjust state. And so what Bonhoeffer says here is that by nature, the gospel is different from politics. The gospel is separate from politics. See, politics exists to manage and to make sure that there is justice and freedom for all. The gospel talks about eternal realities. It talks about uh, the kingdom of God. It talks about our relationship to Christ. So there are times where those two things are separate, and they should be separate. But in extreme circumstances where the state then acts not in, it, in the best interests of its people, but then begins to act unjustly, Bonhoeffer says, then you see an overlap between politics and the gospel. Does that make sense? And so what he says, in these extreme circumstances, then the church should act. So here comes that question, how do we respond as Christians to oppression and Bonhoeffer would say, in extreme circumstances, we're to fight. And in his case, it was trying to bomb Hitler. And so that's kind of like a very, very well, Hitler's an extreme character, but it's an extreme solution to a complex problem. So that's option number one. <clears throat> 
Option number two, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And Peter's going to do the exact opposite, where he's going to say, submit to everybody. While you're turning in your Bibles, I'm just going to grab some water and turn there myself. For those of you who are still turning there, in the World Changer Bible, it is page 978, starting in page 978. Well, 979. We're going to start from verses 13. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to summarize these passages. I'll invite you to read through them as I'm summarizing. Uh, so First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And Peter is going to talk about submission to different entities and different peoples. And the first group that he talks about is submission to the government. <clears throat> And what he says here is, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for God's sake, whether it's king or governor. And the question is, what does it mean to submit to a higher authority for God's sake? And clearly, Peter is concerned with how Christians are perceived by the secular world. And what I want to highlight is, as you read through verses 13 to 17, Peter doesn't actually go into detail of what he means to submit. He just says, submit. And if you do the nerdy thing and look up a, def, uh, a dictionary definition, and not just a modern, diction, uh, modern dictionary, but if you look up a concordance of uh, biblical Greek and you kind of highlight the different definitions of submission, it basically just means to listen to, like to actually submit. If someone says, go do it, then you go do it. And there's no other explanation outside of that. And the reason why this is challenging is because a lot of times... Bible writers will use vocabulary words, but their actual definitions are not what the Bible writers mean because there's theology embedded into those words. And our challenge here is that Peter doesn't explain himself. He just says, submit. Moving on to verses 18 to 25. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to uh, 25, he talks about submission to masters. And in verse 18, he says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Uh, how good does that sound? Hey, if you're a slave and you've got an unjust master, just submit to him. Don't just submit to the nice masters, submit to the bad ones as well. So if you get beaten, just take it. That's what it sounds like. But once again, the question arises, what does Peter mean by submit? And if you read through the passage, he talks about enduring hardship patiently. Verse 20, when someone wrongfully makes your life difficult, do not reciprocate the injustice, but rather fight injustice with patience and goodness. And then in verses 21 to 24, Peter talks about the sufferings of Christ. Now, how would you feel if you were a slave at this time? And you're reading the writings of Peter and he says, submit to your masters and suffer because Jesus suffered as well. That's just not something that I would want to read. I would just kind of think, you know, I just want to be free. I'm just going to I'm just gonna run. Forget this. Or I'm going to take out the guy if I'm bigger than him, right? <clears throat> Peter's theology on the sufferings of Christ are quite developed in this passage. He basically states that suffering reveals Christ to us in a way that blessings cannot reveal Christ. 
you know, I commonly hear women sharing stories about their uh, their la- their labor stories. Like, oh, when I had my child, this happened and this happened and this happened. And, you know, it really is a quite traumatic experience where women are basically putting their lives on the line to bring another life into existence. Um, it, it really is quite traumatic. And what's common in those stories is that um, oftentimes uh, new mothers will say, as soon as I finished giving birth to my child, I contacted my mother and I said, thank you so much for everything that you went through, right? Because they know how difficult it is and now they can appreciate what their mothers have gone through. And men will just never know what this is like. And you've seen those videos where, where they try to mimic the pain by putting electro electroshocks onto their, their abdomen. I have a feeling it's not the same. <laughs> so what Paul, or excuse me, what Peter is saying is that it is in suffering that we gain some sort of gratitude for what Christ, say, uh, Christ faced. We, we recognize that when Jesus took on suffering, he took it gracefully so that we can know what it takes to create change. And by Jesus' suffering, we now have the hope of eternal life. And so that when we face suffering, we can then look at what Jesus has gone through and say, I appreciate and I understand what you've gone through. I too will suffer gracefully so that your name can be glorified. I will persevere and I will trust. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, Peter continues on with his, uh, I guess, with his letter of submission. And I know a lot of you here are going to find this interesting. So chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, for those of you who have your um, seminar, uh, not your seminar, your World Changer Bibles, you'll see that subheading, it says wives, right? This is probably some of the most misogynistic writing in all of Scripture. (laughs) So when you read through the content of, of, of this passage, what I want you to ask yourself is what bits of this passage have to do with actual submission. So let's read through this together. Verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to summarize. Peter talks about the importance of winning an unbelieving spouse to the gospel, um, especially when they don't believe in the same thing that you do. So he says, submit, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. But then he talks about winning them to the gospel. Verses 3 to 5, he says, uh, to the women, don't focus on beaut- don't focus on the outward beauty, but on the inward beauty. And if you think about what he's saying in those three verses, this really has nothing to do with submission. But Peter mentions it anyway. And the question is, why? Verse six, Peter gives the example of Sarah calling Abraham Lord, and this is really the only actual example of submission. But it has to do with giving her husband a special title. It doesn't actually have anything to do with her doing what he says. Because when you read through the story of Abraham and Sarah, Abraham does what Sarah says. Right? She says, go marry Hagar, and then he does. And then she says, go kick out Hagar, and then he does. And so it's really interesting that Peter brings this up. The definition of submission here is that she gives him a respectful title. At the end of verse 6, he gives this 
mysterious line where he says, live without fear, live without fear. Well, what does living without fear have anything to do with submission? And I would like to suggest to you that it it doesn't. We continue on verses 14 to 16, and I'll read this. But even if you suffer, once again, he brings about that suffering theme. Do what is right. God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So Peter here has just finished telling his readers to submit to everyone. Submit to civil authorities. Submit to your masters or your bosses. Submit to your spouse. And here's my question. Why is he concerned that anyone will speak against the one who is submissive? Does that make sense? So he just told everyone, submit, submit, submit. And then he says, when they speak against you, they won't have an actual case to bring against your name. And my question is, why would there be any conflict if I'm the one who is submitting? If I do everything that you want me to, we're not going to argue. So what's Paul worried about? When Paul says submit, he isn't saying do what everybody tells you to do. If we keep reading in chapter 4, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4, if you just flip the page, he says, of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do, so they slander you. So what is implied in the previous verses is that followers of Christ should stand up for what is right. When everyone does that which is wrong, our right actions will cause a stir. And when conflict arises, we are to submit our response to our oppressors as if God is watching. So in other words, if someone tries to hurt me, I will not respond in the same way. So when you go back and you review those examples of submission, each time Peter is saying, live honorably amongst dishonorable people. Let your goodness silence their foolish accusations. You have freedom to act, but don't use that freedom for evil. Give respect when you're wrongfully accused. And this may sound like such an extreme teaching because How often is Christianity rightfully persecuted? And I'm not talking about the Australian Christian lobby where they're saying, oh, we're we're persecuted. They make up their own persecution in a lot of cases. I'm talking about moments where we actually stand up for the right thing and we are persecuted for it. Let me give one example. This this hasn't actually ever happened, but just hypothetically speaking. So here's Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 19. Here's a biblical principle. It says, Do not charge interest on the loans you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. Now, what would happen in Australia if Australians never charged other Australians interest? Like, what would happen if all of the pastors in Australia got up in arms and said, here's a biblical teaching that we want you to follow. Don't support institutions that promote 
debt, right? Forget the RBA. What would happen? The economy would collapse. Like this country lives off of credit right now. And if everybody decided, you know what, we're not going to sponsor this, there would be political, social, economic upheaval from this one verse. Peter knows if we actually follow the spirit of what God's word is saying, it would change everything. And by default, those who benefit from the current immoral system will then persecute those who are trying to change it. Here are a couple historical examples. Mahatma Gandhi, he led one of the most successful nonviolent resistance movements in history. And Gandhi had this vision of an independent India based on religious pluralism. So here is Gandhi, a devout Hindu, and he says, wouldn't it be great if all the religions could just get along? Well, some Indians thought Gandhi was too accommodating. He's too nice. He's too loving. And he's going to make it too good for other religions that we don't like. January 30, 1948, Gandhi was assassinated by a Hindu nationalist. You pick like... Let that settle in for just a second. He was assassinated by his own countrymen from someone who was a part of his own religion because they just thought, you're going to make it hard for us. Here's another historical figure. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. also led a successful nonviolent campaign against racism and later on wealth inequality, and he started publicly speaking out against the Vietnam War. And whenever... Um, Dr. King would go on a march, you would have hundreds and thousands of people who would go and march with him. And now picture being a part of the U.S. government. Here's this African-American pastor, and he's going and just telling people, hey, let's treat each other with civility. Hey, let's try and work on this wealth inequality that, that exists in the U.S. Hey, there's fighting going on in, in Vietnam. We can't explain it. Like, this is wrong. And, you know, it's really interesting because the FBI considered him a radical and they made him an object of their counterintelligence program. Now, I'm not trying to submit um, conspiracy theories or anything like that. My point is that Martin Luther King Jr. caused people to actually think and act morally. And those who opposed him, they couldn't think of any other solution outside of, let's just get rid of this guy. And he was assassinated. So Peter, he's not against protest. Peter's not saying, allow yourself to get walked all over. What he's saying is, in your response to oppression, consider God. How would, what would bring glory to God's name in my response to this difficult person, this difficult situation, this difficult institution? So what Peter is saying is, don't be anti-enemy, be pro-Jesus. And if we are pro-Jesus, there would be a difference in how that plays out in our actions and in our attitudes. The final person that I want to highlight today is Jesus himself, uh, Jesus himself and his response to oppression. Jesus is often portrayed as a pacifist, but I don't actually think he was a pacifist in that there are stories in the Bible. I don't know if you can see this, but he's got like this whip in his hands. And when you read the story, he walks into the sanctuary and he sees the monetization of all this religiosity. 
and it makes him so angry because they're misusing and misrepresenting God, and he takes this rope that's near him, and he chases everybody out. And if you read the text, it doesn't actually say that he hit anybody, but, you know, <laughs> my point is there were times where he used force to, to, to get his message across. And, of course, there's the other example where Jesus is in his trial. He's about to be wrongly crucified, and when he is accused, he responds with pacificity, um, passively, and he basically practices peace. And the reason why he does this, of course, is because he knows if I save myself, I cannot save humanity. And so he goes through it. And my point is that his pacifism has purpose. And so as you consider the writings of Bonhoeffer, the teachings of Peter, and the life of Christ, I present these three challenging cases. And as you go through your suffering, um, I invite you to pray and ask God, what should we do? Um, our first year and a half here in Australia, when I say our, I mean um, myself, Jinha, and, and Micah. Um, it was some of the most difficult time in our, it was a very difficult time in our life. Uh, we had just gotten married. We had just moved to Australia. Um, we had just had a baby, and we just started a new job. And they have these um, surveys where they ask their employers, what changes have you experienced in your life? And if a HR director sees multiple changes and they know uh, this employee is in risk of, uh, that they're a high-risk individual, let's provide some support for them. And for Jinha and I, it was all of those things. It was like arguing from marital challenges and dealing with work and learning how to take care of a baby. And it was just, it was hectic the first year and a half. It was during that time that we probably faced our most difficult challenge when it comes to work as well. And not because of anything that you have done or anything that the people have done, but um, there was just a lot of office politics behind, behind the scenes. Um, we had just started our very first church service. So we ran small groups for about a year and a half, and a group of five of us grew to about 20. And uh, it was during that time where Galen came on board and he said, hey, like, we're here for you. We, we want to support your work. It was here when Shendon and Naomi came on board and said, hey, we're here for you. And it was during that time where we met a lot of you guys. And so it was Sam and Michael, and I'm going to end up naming everybody. But there was a group of people that started this church. And so we were told by our boss, hey, you've got this group of people. We want you to launch church service. Um, just go do it. And we kind of thought, oh, there's just there's 20 of us. Ideally, there'd be more of us, and that way it's easier to sustain church ministries. And we were just told, go do it. Okay, so we got to go do it. So we start church service, and our very first church service finishes. And Jinha and I have high hopes. We're like, oh, this feels really good. And we get a phone call. Hey, by the way, we're moving you. Like, um, we're going to move you to different churches. Now, on one hand, it's very frustrating because we just started the church. Why are you going to move us? And on top of that, like a year and a half before, we get a phone call saying, hey, come to Australia. We'll put both of you in the same church. And that way, when you raise a family, you can spend Sabbath morning together. And it, we'll, we'll make it family friendly for you. Fast forward a year and a half. Hey, we're separating you guys, putting you in separate churches. And we had a baby at that time. So it's kind of like one of us is going to have to take our infant to a church while the other goes to another church. And while that person preaches, who's going to take care of the baby? Well, we don't know. We'll figure it out later. Right? And so it was during that time where it was just a lot of stress. And we kind of felt like, hey, what's going on here? 
There are things outside of our control. How do we respond to this unfair circumstance? And we didn't know anybody. We didn't sit in any of the important meetings. We don't know what's being said behind doors. We just know we're getting moved and somebody wants our slot. Right? That's what it comes down to. Well, our group of leaders come together, and they basically say, hey, Roy Junha, we're here for you. Let's, let's write a letter to administration and just ask them, hey, we just started this church. We think it would be detrimental to the group's health if you remove our pastors um, at this point in time. And so they wrote the letter, and Jinha and I just sat there, and we just prayed, God, what do we do in this situation? Like, what, what do you want us to do? And we were livid. Like, we were so mad. <laughs> but, but the thing is, we didn't know what was going on. And so fast forward a couple weeks, and we get a phone call. Oh, you guys have a new appointment. You guys are staying in the city, and um, we'll call you next year. And that, that was that. And it was kind of going through that situation where Jinha and I kind of looked at each other and just said, look, <laughs> we had zero control. And in the midst of having zero control, we felt God being in control. And this isn't necessarily a good story because – there's so many circumstances where there's a negative outcome and not a positive one. But what I just want to highlight from this is that there are so many moments where we will feel, God, where are you? And as we connect with him through that difficulty, you will see and experience God in ways that you wouldn't have experienced otherwise. So as you're going through your oppression, may you sense God's presence in your life. May God bless you. Father God, in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our difficulties, we call out to you. And it's so difficult to grasp the consistency of the presence of evil and yet the power of your presence being in the same place. And I just want to pray that in the midst of our suffering that your presence would be felt. May we draw together as a community of people. May we support one another in our personal challenges. And may we be mobilized as a church um, to, to be a light and to practice goodness in the midst of uh, the oppression that is around us. Um, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray for your wisdom. We pray in your name. Amen.